Welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. It is going to be an amazing journey today. Hope you're ready for liftoff. We are live now. Well, I feel so privileged and special today. I'm going to get to it in a second. I am Michael Mann, uh, host of Planetary Health First, Mars Next. I can't tell you where we are right now uh, because we are somewhere in the universe. I'll leave it at that. But we are here with a special, amazing guest, John Gorman. And I've been chasing him, not stalking him, but (laughs) I've been trying to find a time to land on Earth with this guy to get him on our show. And we got him today. And we are going to be discussing the state of social determinants of health benefits and Medicare Advantage. Why? Because he's been leading the charge. He's been the visionary on these things with all the Medicare Advantage work that he's done. For I don't want to say the amount of age or time. (laughs) Some 30 years of the making with his former companies. And so if you don't know much about John, I'll just say a little bit and then I'll let him tell you more because he knows himself way better than I'll ever. But John uh, is an investor in social determinants of health. He's led some companies in this. One of his companies that he's done venture investing is Nightingale. And he can tell you a little more about that. But he uh, a few years ago, I believe, sold his company, the Gorman Associates Company, which really was... uh, I guess part of your legislative experience and, and, and the capital and understanding the dots of how this is going to work, what it was look like. And then, bam, you just got up and, and got running and made this thing happen. So I'm going to segue to you, John, kind of share with our audience. Uh, I know many people know you, but those who don't, just a little bit about your background and, and uh, let's get going. Sure. Thanks for having me, Michael. Really, it's uh it's a thrill to be here, and I know we've been we've been trying to connect for for quite a while, but uh, glad we finally made it together. Uh, I'm John Gorman. Uh, thrilled to be with you. I'm uh, back here at home in uh, Washington D.C. And um, uh, just by way of background, uh, as Michael pointed out, uh, in my 35 years here in the Capitol, now um, I started here working out for my uh, hometown congressman from Detroit, John Conyers. Uh, came to run his congressional office, then went to work for President Clinton. Um, and we set up the first office of managed care in what was then uh, the Healthcare Financing Administration, uh, which is, of course, today, Michael, CMS. Let me let my chief canine officer in here. Um, hello, buddy. And, um, you know, we uh, we basically had to carve out of a fee-for-service agency uh, a, a whole team of people that were would be able to run the Medicare and Medicaid HMO programs uh, in the early 90s. So that was sort of the big precursor for now where we see the program, Michael. And had you told me, you know, back in 96 when I was there uh, and Medicare risk, as it was then known, was about 7% of the program, that we would be at 52% of all Medicare beneficiaries now enrolled in what we call Medicare Advantage, I would have told you you were smoking something that's, you know, not covered by Medicare Part D. Um, it's just yeah, an amazing yeah. <laughs> uh, trajectory that we've seen. And and similarly, and even more so in Medicaid managed care. I mean, Medicaid uh, health plans now represent about 74% of all Medicaid enrollees. Mm. So uh, we started a real... Um, uh, you know, a real trend and an office in the agency that would be capable of uh, regulating it and overseeing it. And when I left, I came to start Gorman Health Group. Uh, it became the biggest consulting and technology practice in the country in Medicare Advantage and in Medicaid. And um, you mentioned, you know, all the political and policy stuff, but uh, the core of the business back then and where, you know, we really made our bread and butter was in uh, turnarounds and fixing broken health plans that were participating in these programs and, uh, you know, the huge consequences that come from being out of compliance. So uh, that was really our, you know, our bread and butter there. And we use that practice as sort of like an R&D lab Mm. to identify problems among several of our clients and then say, you know, could we write a piece of software to fix this? Or could we develop an outsourced service that we could do this better than the plans? And, um, uh, we spun off about a dozen companies, one of which uh, became Signify Health, 
which you know, as we all know, had acquired last last year. So I've I've been in this space for over thirty years, as you yeah. point out, and I've got the scars on my ass of a man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to show us that here live, no, all right? No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll we'll take the figurative meeting, but um, I love how you walked us through that, and uh, I love how you said 1996 Clinton. I think we've heard that name before, but how CMS wasn't even the word CMS. That's phenomenal. No, and, we were the Healthcare Financing Administration. Yeah, that's, yeah, and then the the fact that you um shared i think of what was it seven percent now to like the amount of 52 percent today yeah that's just unheard of yeah. so my gosh to hit it at the right time so i would say if anyone needs uh some luck on a mojo it's you with timing you must be the mother of all the king of all timing with hitting an industry at the right time um so what are you doing today uh you, you obviously know where the puck is what are what are you up to today the important thing is knowing where the puck's going to be. Um, today, uh, I'm still serving as chairman of Nightingale Partners, Michael, as you pointed out. That's our our venture fund that invested in that invests in social determinants of health uh, companies in their early stages. Um, so, for instance, we've invested in food security and food as medicine companies. We've invested in uh, non-urgent medical transportation, which is a board meeting I was just coming from in Philly uh, last night. Uh, we invested in a company that uh, does uh, the PACE program. Uh, so that's the program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. These are basically adult daycare centers that are set up as um, nursing home diversion programs, really, with services that are that stretch into the member's home. Uh, we just opened uh, earlier this year our, our first pay site here in Washington, D.C., and we're really thrilled about how that's going. So uh, we invested in these types of companies, and then we would uh, collaborate with, uh, you know, many of, of my friends in the insurance industry that I've made over all these years um, to basically stand up uh, interventions around uh, the social determinant of health issues. So you know, we've got to say right from the top, Michael, as I always like to, that, you know, social determinants of health are just four fancy words for poverty and racism in healthcare, And, you know, they account for 60 to 80 percent of what we spend on healthcare in this country. And those effects are magnified dramatically among elders, of course, who have lived, you know, a lifetime of poverty and suffer from uh, you know, multiple comorbidities typically. And then, um, you know, the the hardening that occurs uh, from living a life of poverty and racism and that that, um, you know, has cumulative health effects. And so typically anti-poverty initiatives in Medicare Advantage, in Medicaid, where we're serving dual eligibles and disabled people, um, these types of programs and benefits are hugely uh, impactful. And, you know, I just, you know, I got my start in this, you know, when I, when I sold Gorman health group and I was goofing off for a year after, and, you know, my wife was tired of me sitting around the house all the time. So I did a little project with, um, some friends up at Geisinger and, you know, they were, they were dying because they, uh, they found they were spending uh, a quarter of a million dollars per patient per year on their unmanaged uh, elderly diabetics, mm. quarter million dollars per patient per year. I mean, it's just staggering the cost of this disease, especially in these rural communities like where Geisinger serves in central PA. And they tried everything, nothing was working. So we worked on the establishment of a, a food security service that would deliver medically appropriate meals to uh, a pilot of their first thousand members. And what we found was that after 14 months, uh, we had their average cost down from $248,000 per patient per year to $48,000 per patient per year. So net of the cost of the meals, wow. we saved, you know, over $200,000 a year and per patient. Yeah. And the return on investment was 35 X. And I was just like, flabbergasted because mm -hmm. what else can you invest in, in this world 
that will get a 35x return on investment. So yeah. I was hooked and that was it. And that's where the birth of Nightingale occurred. And when was that? What was the year? Uh, what year was that? Oh, I think we got started in, um, Oh, it was 2019. 2019. Wow. Yeah. That is just incredible. 35X. That that sounds yeah. like a, a venture fund dream. program to their entire Medicare Advantage population that's diabetic. And it's like one of the biggest things that they've ever done. And, you know, now they've institutionalized the whole benefit. So they have their own kitchens. They have their own fresh fruit and produce division. I mean, and they're they're crushing it. And that was like what, what made me want to be an SDOH investor. Yeah. So uh, I serve as the chairman at Nightingale still. Uh, as you mentioned, we sold it uh, last summer, but I'm staying on to oversee the legacy investments. And then I'm serving as um, uh, advisor to a couple of companies. I'm sitting on six boards still. And at the moment, I'm working with um, – Tony Welter's amazing company uh, called Sync Care, C-I-N-Q Care. And Tony, as you may know, is a legend in our industry and uh, uh, basically was the architect of United's entire Medicaid business. Um, his first two hires were Rodney Armstead, who was my boss in the Clinton administration. Mm. And uh, his second hire was Rita Mills, who was my co-founder in Nightingale. Wow. And the company really specializes in full risk management and MSO services for uh, health plans for dual eligibles. And mm -hmm. we will basically take all the risk on a dual eligible population and guarantee a return and, and an improvement in quality for the services we provide. So, so I'm busy. So this is almost like Gorman 3.0. I mean, I'm hearing what you did in the beginning, kind of like full circle, but gangbusters on your new data, your new what's going on. Would you say it's kind of like a full realization of where you were? Well, it's certainly an evolution. Um, you know, I really felt after, you know, 23 years in consulting and technology development that um, it'd be really freaking cool to be the banker for a change. Um <laughs> And that was, you know, that was a really, really interesting, like three and a half years uh, with Nightingale. And, you know, frankly, I think we made the right move given what we're seeing in the venture market uh, right now. But, you know, certainly for the evolution of the stuff that I'm really passionate about and where I think we see the greatest bang for the buck in terms of improving quality for, you know, the most vulnerable patients in the system, I'm right where I want to be and I'm, I'm having a blast. Yeah, I, I just I'm really excited hearing what you've done and what you're awesome. doing. Tell me about mental health. We talk about behavioral health. Are there any things that you're seeing there involved in on that? Because that seems to be in many ways, if you're not feeling well, I mean, I know social determinants of health, you know, it's like, you know, there's different, uh, you know, that whether it's the WHO or, you know, different um, organizations that have created the models but it seems like well-being, mental health, if you don't have that, you don't have hope, if you're not commun if you're not connected as a social, um, and maybe I'm getting a little too out there on Mars right now, and I'll bring it down to you, just if you could go on to that, if there's any segue with mental health and what you're doing with that with social determinants of health. I mean, sure. You know, it's, it's such an incredibly broad uh, subsector within our industry. And as it usually plays out among uh, older Americans and, you know, really vulnerable, low income patients, especially uh, the disabled, it's, it's almost a whole ball game. Um, you know, one, one thing you certainly learn that, you know, a lifetime of poverty almost always gets you, you know, serious depression and the blues are, and the blues when I it, depression, not blue cross blue shield organizations, you know, I think is far more prevalent among elders and disabled people uh, than we've ever seen in surveys and polls. I mean, I just think there's so many folks, uh, older Americans, especially that just feel like there's a stigma attached with talking about this and asking for help with um, mental and behavioral health concerns. And it breaks down into so many different spaces, Michael, that we had to really kind of be 
pretty thoughtful about how we looked at it. So we, you know, we invested in uh, companies that make uh, therapists and especially uh, social workers available to seniors. Uh, we've been big investors in community health workers, which, you know, are an incredible sort of non-clinical resource at the community level that, you know, their, their one job is to clear the rocks from the road and to get uh, vulnerable folks the services that they need. And they are invaluable in terms of connecting uh, seniors and disabled folks uh, with these uh, much higher prevalence of these types of conditions uh, into the resources that they need. Um, we've invested heavily in substance abuse treatment and, um, you know, the various aspects of how uh, you can do that both online and in residential treatment facilities. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I, the one thing I really take great hope in, Michael, is that, you know, both of my, my daughters now are college age. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that they see in, in their schools is just this incredible flood of these millennials uh, going into psychology, wanting to go into social work, uh, wanting to be doing counseling of, of all sorts. And it, it gives me some hope for what the workforce may look like in five to 10 years, recognizing the acute shortage of, of these types of, of professionals that we, we uh, can avail ourselves of today. So, you know, the primary issues that we're dealing with is, as we see it in this space, especially in the medically underserved communities where, you know, the, the most vulnerable folks that, you know, we really focus on are, um, is just increasing access to these professionals by any means necessary, if that's online, if that's um, even just, you know, getting people together in, a, in an underserved community, in a group session, if that's all we can manage at a church, those things matter. And, um, you know, the more and better you can coordinate around those, those things and to provide, you know, safe spaces where these types of services can be rendered. Um, I think that's really where the greatest impact can be found. We certainly, uh, threw a lot of focus into unhoused people, um, mm -hmm. because of the, you know, the prevalence of mental health conditions among mm -hmm. them and really found some really cool and innovative ways of approaching unhoused and, and housing insecure people in need of, of better mental and behavioral health services. Can you share a little more about the unhoused, some innovation there that you were, I, I'd, I'd love to hear more Absolutely. about that. I mean, we, we worked with a couple of different clients uh, that had substantial unhoused and housing insecure uh, in numbers of enrollees. And it really became an issue of who do we serve first in the greatest need and for whom we can deliver a solution to most quickly. Because dealing with, with homelessness, Michael, as you're well aware, is it's, it's a really intractable and complex issue in this country um, it, from many, many respects. I mean, on one hand, the biggest contributor to homelessness in this country is um, is debt, which usually comes from utility debt uh, or it comes from medical debt. And people get behind in these bills and uh, they can't afford their rent or their mortgage any longer. And they, they end up couch surfing and living out of their cars and then they end up on the street. And so our first imperative was to mine the data and identify the population in greatest need that we could help the fastest. And to our fascination, uh, we found with, with one of our, our biggest clients on this, uh, it was uh, newly emancipated foster kids. Mm. And these kids hit 18 and their foster families put them out on the street and they have no skills, no money, no place to go. And in the market where we were working in, Michael, you know, within six months, 50% of those kids were being trafficked, were addicted mm. to opioids or both. And um, so we said, okay, this, this is our group and we're going we're gonna to really go hard at this group of kids 
first. So the solution we had there was, you know, it was really at the outset of the pandemic. And in the anytime you're trying to deal with uh, housing issues like this, Michael, you know, it's always about the supply and the cost of the supply, which is the second biggest contributor to uh, homelessness in this country is that people just can't afford their rents and mortgages anymore. Um, and the astronomical uh, increase in housing costs in just the last five to seven years has just been staggering. I mean, you really need to be earning well over $100,000 a year to uh, own a home in almost any urban market today. So um, so with these foster kids, um, the market was not going to allow us a very fast solution given zoning and NIMBY politics and all the other shit that goes mm -hmm. on and trying to increase housing supply. But at the outset of the pandemic, Michael, the one folks that had a glut of space that was ready to go were long-term corporate hotels. Mm. And so we went to, you know, Candlewood Suites and we went to, you know, a, a couple of the other chains and we said, we want to take out a block of rooms for at least a one year lease. And they sat right up and they said, what are we talking about? And I said, we've got, we've got several thousand newly emancipated foster kids. They're 18, don't have substance abuse issues, some minor uh, mental health and behavioral issues that can be dealt with on an outpatient basis. We'd want to block off this group of kids uh, and they will have on-site uh, community health workers and a nurse 24-7 uh, overseeing them like a, like an RA in a, in a college dorm. Mm -hmm. And in two meetings, we had a couple of thousand rooms to go and do this. And many of those kids are still in those rooms today or have now, you know, by now have cycled out and are, uh, you know, making their own way or they've got their own housing now. And um, that program was an absolutely astounding success because, um, and we figured we got about a 20X return on investment on this. Because otherwise, you know, we were going to be dealing with thousands of kids hitting these ERs, um, kids hitting these these homeless shelters, which were pretty horrible in the market we were working in. Um, most of them were going to end up on the street or couch surfing. And, you know, there are going to be just rashes of hospitalizations. We were going to see them involved in the justice system. And because this was a, a county owned entity that we were working with, part of our ROI equation was what is the saving the county and the city in terms of services, other social services, just by a housing first policy for these kids. So that was one example and one that we were really proud of, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, still working great today. Wow. I, that's just so exciting. I love to hear that. So how did that come on the radar? Where, where did you find out about the need and that county and that, how did that come? Do you, you have the, I mean, the idea? client came to us and they, oh, you know, wow. they, were, they were like, we have five figures worth of unhoused, people in this market. And um, we see all the research just like you do that shows that, you know, you get these people into housing and they're going to cost you a whole lot less mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise we're dealing with them in ERs. We're dealing with them in inpatient settings. We're dealing with them in nursing homes and they don't want and don't need to be in those places. And so when you take a housing first approach, Michael, mm -hmm. and then you wrap the social services around the housing, that's where you get, you know, these astronomical results like we saw in that case. So what do you think? And I, I know you can't answer this most likely because when I do, I, I'm always learning, always asking questions. That's the only way I learn is ask questions. And and so especially when it comes to Medicaid and programs, it's so localized. And so I know like the NIMBY, which is I, I, I've finally came to realize that term because that's a lot with a lot of oh, <laughs> not in my backyard NIMBY. but yeah but um i imagine there's so much competition and lack of cooperation with locale and city and county and and so it's really that to me seems like a big issue and how have you seen that being resolved um when it comes to these sort of um opportunities if you would or barriers I mean, like we said, this this is 
it's such a complicated issue, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, when one of the biggest answers has to be to increase the supply of affordable housing, you know, you're talking in most urban settings, Michael, you're talking at least a four to five year horizon. If you're building new space, if there's even space to build in. Now, in the markets that we worked in, like in Southern California, that are very crowded, extremely expensive real estate, you know, the bigger solution has to involve repurposing government property. Like the city and county of Los Angeles has literally hundreds and hundreds of square miles of defunct army bases that could be turned into, you know, huge villages for mm -hmm. housing insecure people or for, uh, you know, memory communities, like mm -hmm. for uh, older Americans who, you know, need to need affordable housing in a communal setting will be the best thing for them. Mm -hmm. But this stuff takes years, Michael. Yeah. And so yeah. in the immediate focus, you know, I, I think it really kind of has to be around how do we use innovative ways like unused hotel space mm -hmm. to um, make this stuff available for folks. There are health plans that are out there that are throwing millions of dollars on rehabbing, you know, the defunct no-tell motel out on the edge of town, you know, and they're going to spend 20 million bucks on that mm -hmm. to house 100 people. That's not cost effective. Mm -hmm. um, so you're almost you're more almost immediately thinking. into, you know, long-term corporate housing, yeah. if that's available. Yeah. Uh, one of the companies that I serve on the board of and that it, I advise is called Upside senior living mm -hmm. and these these guys this is a SaaS based um service that um will evaluate any member in medicare advantage or in medicaid for their housing needs uh they will assign them in effect a community health worker who specializes in housing and uh they will then hit their national network of affordable low-income housing and um, assisted living facilities to arrange um, a place for that person to land. And they can do this in a lot of cases within a week. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a very cost-effective uh, means of managing somebody under a housing first policy that first, you you know, you got to shelter them. Mm -hmm. You know, all of this comes down to Maslow's hierarchy, right, Michael? Mm -hmm. You know, you remember when we studied Maslow's <laughs> hierarchy, it's the triangle and... Give me, <laughs> give me something to eat. Give me something to eat. But give me oxygen. The triangle <laughs> is shelter yeah. and security. And that if you're not safe, if you can't sleep, mm -hmm. um, you're never going to be able to be an effective participant in your own health care. So first house them, mm -hmm. then get them food, then get them mental health services if that's what they need. Get them job training if that's what they need. Get them substance abuse treatment if that's what they need. And um, that's always been the approach that works best. But in the long term, the only answer here is, you know, almost like a, a, a whole of government effort around affordable housing. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's got to, it's way beyond, the need is way beyond anything like uh, HUD could mm -hmm. do, even with, with subsidies. I, I, what I've heard from the way you're saying it, it's, it's like really the Airbnb model. It's leveraging that excess capacity and connecting exactly. the dots. It's like yeah. Uber Eats or DoorDash. It's like use all the infrastructure and just get it right. And, and so um, I, I've just, I don't, I, I am just blown away and just, just really energized and pumped from hearing you talk about this because i'm not getting old yet because no one gets old right i mean uh, i'm not getting old yet <laughs> i don't know if i can't speak for you brother i'm definitely yeah. old. all right well I'm, <laughs> there's a little bit of facetiousness in that but but i i guess what i'm saying for what you're talking about here today is i can only imagine the audience as they listen getting pumped up excited about participating and making our world our country better um, and participating in how we can engage the community. Um, and, and I think young, so I'm hoping after this, we can get some resources to the organizations you're involved with, some of these programs, because I, I think it really is about first the awareness of other 
uh, people just like myself or younger people that are hitting the work markets uh, because it seems like they need more um, people, not necessarily in volunteers, but just more awareness of, of what I would say is new solutions for these new evolving problems. It's an, it's an opportunity, an area of maximum opportunity. And we are in the process of redesigning how we see what healthcare is. Healthcare is no longer the way we thought it was. It's not about going to the doctor anymore. Oh, no. I mean, and certainly, you know, now that we've really affirmatively found that poverty and racism drive the vast majority of expenditures in healthcare in this country. I mean, listen, man, we are only here because our social safety net has more holes in it than Swiss cheese. I mean, <clears throat> if we had anywhere near the scope of social welfare benefits that some of like the Northern European Christian democracies have, like a Sweden or a Norway, you wouldn't see these kinds of healthcare expenditures mm -hmm. like we deal with here in the U.S. It's just because, you know, this this country may be the land of the free and home of the brave, but it's also the country of fuck the poor. And and that's a big reason why we're in this healthcare conundrum that we are now. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, what we've been able to do is to figure out some innovative ways of financing and delivering these kinds of social health services that, you know, frankly, the government should be doing, mm -hmm. but we've had to find a way of following the money. Mm -hmm. And in the case of poverty, following the costs and figuring out how relatively easy and cost effective it is to, um, to deal directly with the effects of poverty and, and immediately or very quickly reduce the, the attendant costs that come with it. Um, everything that we invested in in Nightingale and the stuff that I'm working on now, a community health worker is, you know, that's going to be the job of the future mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in uh, a lot of this. I think that's going to end up being one of the highest headcounts among health plans in the decade mm -hmm. to come. And these are basically social workers without a license who know their community. They, they have, you're really hiring for a personality type for a community mm -hmm. health worker. They're, you know, they're, I've basically found the, the most effective community health workers we ever hired were church ladies, frankly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're just lovely, big hearted people. Mm -hmm. You know, they love helping people. They've lived mm -hmm. in that community their entire lives. They know how to, how to help. And then you offer them a paycheck to do what they love <laughs> to do anyway. You know, it's, it's fantastic. I think we're going to see a lot of that, but a, assigning a community health worker has been shown to save on average about $2,500 per member per year in healthcare wow. costs. Um, food is medicine inter interventions reliably return, you know, north of $3,000 per member per year minimum on most chronic diseases that are food sensitive like diabetes or, or kidney disease. Um, these are investable projects and companies that, that provide these services. And when you approach it from a value-based perspective, Michael, and you arrange the financing of these services in a value-based environment, and you say, we're basically going to take some of these shared savings that we've generated from dealing with poverty, and we're going to reinvest it back into these types of programs to serve more people next year. That's what enables the sustainable financing of these types of benefits in Medicare Advantage and in Medicaid. And, you know, this week, uh, ATI Advisory, which is wonderful think tank. They're actually my next door neighbors. And Tomlinson <laughs> is, is one of my next door neighbors and they do amazing work. But this week they released their uh, 2024 report on SDOH benefits, supplemental benefits in Medicare Advantage. And I got to say, man, there's some troubling numbers mm -hmm. that we're seeing in, in this report. What what was so encouraging for us and other SDOH warriors on this stuff for the last five years is the explosion of these types of benefits and services from just five years ago when they were first authorized and we started to see the first uh, early adopters. And so, for instance, food benefits went from 100 plans 
uh, five years ago to over 2,000 plans offering some form of food benefit this year. Well, what we're now seeing for 2024, Michael, is something troubling, which is those numbers are getting static. And in some cases, they're rolling backwards. Like uh, we're seeing the number of plans that are offering uh, in-home services to help with activities of daily living fell off dramatically. Like there was a two-thirds drop in the number of plans offering those types of services to members in home and community-based settings. Those are tremendously effective services. But what it says to me is that Medicare Advantage plans still have not grasped mm -hmm. the clinical benefit of these types of, of services and, and uh, benefits for their members. That these product managers, the general managers of these MA plans, very often, obviously, are still looking at this stuff as a marketing and sales tool and mm -hmm. as a way of, uh, you know, inducing membership into the plan, but without regard for if we structured it the right way, it would save us thousands of dollars on this population. Mm -hmm. And they look at it as a retention tool, mm -hmm. but not as much as a weapon to help improve all the heatest measures mm -hmm. and the member experience under star ratings. Mm -hmm. I mean, we spend a whole lot of time when we think about the member experience, which is two thirds of star ratings now, Michael, mm. in terms of what happens in doctor's offices. But the average Medicare beneficiary, Michael, goes to an outpatient doc on average about twice a month. Okay. So there's limited impact of the member experience in what happens in doctor's offices. Well, now think of a food benefit. Okay. And if this is a food benefit that you're getting, say, five days a week and the food is shit, nobody wants to eat it, mm -hmm. as a couple of the big incumbent vendors typically sell. I mean, look, I'll tell you a little anecdote. When my mom passed last September, I had to spend a whole day cleaning out her three basement freezers. And they were absolutely chock full of frozen meals that had been sent to her by her Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, they'd send her two weeks of this frozen shit every time she got out of the hospital, which was a lot in those last few years. But she wouldn't eat this stuff because it was just, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. But she was a depression baby, so she wasn't going to throw it away either. And so she had three freezers stuffed full of this stuff. And so first I tried to bring it down to the local food bank. They wouldn't take it because they said, it wouldn't meet their dignity standards. Mm. And then I tried to take it to goodwill. They wouldn't take it. I ended up having to dump this stuff in a landfill because nobody wanted it. After I took it to the homeless shelters in town and they took as much as they could, they could stick in a freezer. And it, it, that, that's sort mm -hmm. of the state of the art of food benefits in Medicare Advantage. And it's terrible. A food intervention is only as good as the food. And if it's not culturally competent, if it's not edible, mm -hmm. if it's not easy to prepare or consume, that intervention is just money going down a rat hole. So uh, as you were talking, I was listening to what you said with two third of the stars ratings are coming from HEDIS. And most right. of that is from the doctors, the primary care doctors visit. Is there or are you involved? And I'm sure you know this. Um, about the redesign or an improvement of care uh, of the Medicare Advantage or CMS initiatives that are they trying to get more of where that 168 hours or whatever, the 165 hours where the person's in the home. So why don't we look at those things that we can, is that the future of really getting the quality metrics where they're really showing how the plan's doing the engagement outside of the walls, in their well, home. That's, that's my point about a food benefit. I mean, if that food mm -hmm. benefit is terrible, think about what that does to your, your star rating, to the member experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, everybody in Medicare Advantage complains about how dual eligibles are tanking my ratings, my star ratings. You can't make these people happy. Well, if you're giving them a, a meal benefit and it's shit food they wouldn't serve in prison, mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen? Mm -hmm. 
you know, you got to give these folks stuff that one is culturally competent that no matter what it is, if it's a transportation benefit, it's got to be convenient. It can't be confusing. You know, mm -hmm. th these things have to be provided in a form and a manner that somebody who has maybe an eighth grade education and who has suffered in poverty their entire life can understand and can uh, utilize to the ends that you need them to for that, a benefit like that to work. So are they, are the plans that really get it, I guess they're really using those community health workers slash social researchers, anthropologists like minded UX design. I mean, that really is a UX design customer delight. Um, are there any good scenarios of them trying to really get it right? Cause there's money. I mean, I hate to say it, the stars are what drive the, the, all of it. So uh, yeah. I, I'd love to hear anything that you're seeing or, or a way to get better at that. I mean, look, we're already doing it in terms of marketing and sales materials. I mean, we have all this stuff translated into every applicable language that may be in an, a health plant service area. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of care managers and some chief medical officers understand okay. that we have to be able to provide social services as culturally competently mm -hmm. as our healthcare services are. And, um, you know, I think plans that operate in really diverse urban areas in particular get that. Um, I think, you know, they do what they can to make language lines available so that if, you know, somebody's Cambodian and they, they, mm -hmm. they need translation service in a doctor's office, they'll make that available. But the real state of the art is having a team of community health workers mm -hmm. that speak Cambodian mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, the greatest advances in services to counteract the effects of poverty, Michael, are really not done by technology. They're tech informed, but generally the stuff that works the best and has the greatest impact um, are those things that are very high touch, frankly, and that, you know, folks need a helping hand to figure out how to get to this appointment or, uh, you know, how do I uh, go and apply for this benefit that I'm eligible for, but I, I, I don't have transportation to get to. Um, one of the greatest innovations of the last several years that I just love is uh, my, my friend Anna DePaula Hanukkah's uh, company called Uno Health. And this is, she's, a, she's an old Google uh, engineer, and she's got a whole team of nerds that have figured out how to um, develop an app that will help uh, Medicare beneficiaries, Medicaid beneficiaries, electronically enroll automatically for in all of the social welfare programs that they're eligible for in the state in which they live. And so it eliminates going down to wait in lines at welfare offices or at the social security administration or the post office so that you can get a housing voucher or you can get low income heating assistance, or you can get uh, a utility uh, abatement program uh, enacted for you. And, I mean, she's got clinical trials that show that just doing this, again, saves thousands of dollars per member per year um, for uh, members that, that receive a service like this. So just something mm -hmm. that's a rare example of a tech solution mm -hmm. that really does something hugely impactful uh, against poverty's effects. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, you know, it's going to be done in the home, in a community based setting by somebody who looks like that patient, who understands their circumstances with a shared lived experience, that's where you see the real magic happen. Mm -hmm. No, that was great. Uh, love, I just put up there for those, uh, Uno Health, uh, super wicked smart. Any social worker would love that. Oh gosh, the oh, resources I mean, just, you know, it's it's plug and play. I love that company. Yeah. They're yeah. doing amazing work. So that's, that's one example. Upside Senior Living is a housing company I work with, a uh, food company I work with specifically around food as medicine and uh, food security is uh, Epicured up in uh, New York City. And they're just uh, 
amazing. They, they came out of a direct to consumer company that um, basically was doing prepared meals for folks with um, uh, like Crohn's disease and IBS. And in their first couple of years, they knocked up tens of thousands of customers in Manhattan, most of whom were like, you know, stressed out stockbrokers. Um, and they built this beautiful business around it. And I, and, but they were gaining their, their members onesie twosie. And I went to Rich Bennett, the CEO, who's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I said, what if we went to a health plan and we got you a contract for a half a million meals for next year? And he said, holy shit, let's, let's go do that. <laughs> and, and so we, you know, in the development effort, it was what are the main food sensitive chronic conditions among seniors? And now let's build out a menu and a solution for each one. And then getting all the clinical trials done, like Rich just finished up um, some uh, clinical research at University of Michigan and Michigan State around the clinical value of a food as medicine program for uh, a GI condition and for uh, kidney disease, for instance. And those are some of the new Jack SDOH companies that um, that I think are, you know, just doing bang up work right now. And if the plans could actually wake up and take a longer view than just one year ahead and see that the true value of SDOH benefits is in reducing the medical loss ratio and improving the quality of care that these folks get, thereby lifting your star rating and improving uh, your clinical quality of care. That's where this stuff is at. You know, these benefits are, are just being really wasted as a marketing and sales and retention tool only. I know you sh shared about a, a chief medical officer that might get it. What would you, what are you seeing the plants that are getting it that how their process is that that are evaluating these companies, the ROI, the keeping them, the making that selection? It almost seems like a company that did that as a partner, uh, you, you know, almost like a, you know, a, you know, like a third party um yeah, there are a lot yeah. of third parties that do this type of analysis that show these plans where to focus these types of efforts. In the big, big companies, this is typically what they call health economics or medical economics. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'll, I'll let you in on a dirty little secret, Michael. You know, the chief medical officer is not typically the person who makes decisions like this on their own. The most powerful person in any of these health plans is the actuary. And the actuary is the one who will tell you diabetes costs us this every year. And it's the actuaries as much as anybody that have been reluctant to acknowledge the longer term health effects of these types of benefits and services. So, um, you know, there's, there's still a lot of convincing that has to happen out there, especially when we're seeing trends like we saw in uh, the ATI report this week with, uh, you know, basically stagnation in these benefits uh, across Medicare Advantage. I, I think that's um, that's upsetting and uh, something we really got to revisit uh, as we head on into 2025. Yeah. Do you think um, part of the economic climate has just made uh, a slash approach part of what you're seeing possibly in the ATI report? showing a lot of back, um, you know, where you had 2000 uptick of some really amazing social determinants of health. And now you've seen a lot of uh, uh, lowering that uh, just cost cutting measures or what? Some somewhat. I mean, it's got a lot more to do with the changes in the payment rates that CMS pays mm -hmm. them in the base rates. And, you know, we are having the beginning of a real problem in Medicare Advantage right now, Michael, which is you know, we're over 50% of the program now. Mm -hmm. And the base rates that these plans are paid is basically a rolling average of the last five years of what fee-for-service paid on a county-by-county -county basis. And, um, you know, and then they apply all kinds of little adjustments and factors to that. Mm -hmm. But that's the core of it. Um, but now that we're over 50%, that's starting to cause some real volatility in these rates. And mm -hmm. CMS is going to have to have a real come to Jesus mm -hmm. in this next year or two to recalibrate these rates so that they're more stable now that the majority of the program 
is Medicare Advantage. So that's for one. Where you see economic effects is going to be in things like a transportation benefit or food benefit because of the inflation in groceries and commodities and the price of gas is coming back now down now. But I think a lot of plans hit the brakes, if you will, on a transportation benefit because it's really hard to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Round Trip, which is our uh, portfolio company in non-urgent medical transportation, is a very different company than, say, an Uber or a Lyft in that they are tailoring that ride service to the medical needs of the patient. You know, Uber will basically just send, you know, whoever is available. But the beauty of a, a company like Round Trip is they've run the data on the membership and they know exactly which member needs what type of ride. You know, a single Uber driver with a freaking Prius is not going to be able to get Big Mama down from a fifth story walk up to get to dialysis four days a week and stay there with her for the four hours she's in that chair. That's what companies like Round Trip do. And they'll make sure there's three guys to get Big Mama down every day. Mm-hmm. And she's in an ambulette mm-hmm. and somebody is, is going to be there to pick her up as soon as she's done with her dialysis every day. That's a tough thing to do when it it's not executed well. It's another one of these things where mm-hmm. if it's a benefit that's in common use, regular, frequent use, nothing torches yeah. a member experience like a shitty transportation benefit or lousy food. Yeah. Well, John, we're really coming towards the end. Uh, I don't want to get you barraged with inbounds, but uh, I know just having you here and people seeing and hearing you, they're just going to be uh, wanting to to learn more. So what would be the best way uh, to connect with you? How would you like, uh, you know, this is your moment to, to let us, uh, our audience know you and, and, and how we should proceed. Uh, well, my, uh, my contact information is on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, you guys can reach me at uh, john.warman at nightingalepartners.org. Um, that's usually uh, the best way to reach me. And uh, I'm active on LinkedIn, obviously. And I hope you'll check out uh, Sync Care, uh, the great new company I'm working with today. Well, I need to put that up there because that's that's a yeah. spell. Is that it right there? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Tony Welters, the legend. Um, so, you know, we kind of put our band back together and under Tony's <laughs> wing and we're having a good time out there. So that doesn't hurt. So if you play good music, it could be a plus when working with John Gorman, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Fellow musicians unite. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, this has been such an awesome, awesome time having you. And I, I would Thanks, consider, Michael. I hope you consider me a friend. I consider you a mm-hmm. friend, John, and everything you're doing. And this is a wrap up for today on Planetary Health. And uh, thank you all for coming. Thanks, brother. Friends, it has been a great journey today on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Follow us for more on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Until next time, peace be with you.